Welcome back, friends, to the Mark Claire Show. And for those of you watching the video anyway on YouTube, this one will be on YouTube. Why not? YouTube, BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, anywhere and everywhere I try to put the video out for you guys. Uh, for those of you watching on video, the studio you see around you, the original Mark Claire Studios, uh, it's somewhat dilapidated. It's falling apart a bit, but that's okay. This is the last time I'm going to be in there. We're moving uh, in a couple days, and there will be a brand new studio. So what what better way to cap off an area, the, uh, the Mark Claire Show V1, if you will, than by looking at one of the biggest topics of our time. I'm certainly of our lifetime, of my lifetime anyway, and that is the subject of 9-11. This is one I brought up on the Top Five Lies Nearly Everyone Believes episode I did with Pete Quinones a few weeks back. So we'll be diving into that one today with, as far as I'm concerned, one of the absolute best researchers on this topic, Adam Fitzgerald. Before I get into that, I got to remind you, there's a reason I got so much energy. That's because I did have my Fox & Sons coffee this morning. I had some of the Brazilian honey prep and it was quite delicious. You can check out all of their fine, fine beans over at Fox foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. That's foxandsons.com. Use discount code MCS at checkout for 18% off your order. Once you try a sample bag, you're going to want to get a subscription. And right now, Stephen Fox is giving $4 per month off those subscriptions, which are already such a great deal. So head over to foxandsons.com. Help a good sponsor of the show, Stephen Fox, who is also teaching his sons about entrepreneurship with this business. Hence, the Fox and the Sons. Check them out. And don't forget to use that discount code MCS at checkout. With that being said, it's time for my discussion with Adam Fitzgerald. My guest today is a 9-11 researcher and the co-host of the Darkened Hour podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome Adam Fitzgerald. Adam, welcome to my show. Well, thank you very much for having me, Mark. Thank you. Well, certainly, Adam. And as we were talking about before the show, uh, I was first turned on to you by my friend Tommy Sammons. He's got a great podcast over at Year Zero. You've done, I, I want to say, like seven or eight episodes with him on 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 nine eleven, something like that. Uh, so obviously, and as well as your own work, there's a ton to cover with the subject of nine eleven. We're not going to come close to getting to all of it today, but we'll look at this as sort of an introductory, a one one to some of the research that you've done on this subject. So uh, before we dive all the way into that, I, I think the best place to start might be. Well, you're from New York, as we were talking. You you live in uh, I think Brooklyn right now, and uh, so I'm curious your own uh, your own personal experience of 9/11. Where were you on 9/11? And then you know maybe you can transition into telling us a little bit about when you started to actually do research on this event. Yeah, no. Um, on September 11th. Oh, by the way, I was born in Brooklyn, but I live in uh, Lower Westchester. But on okay. September 11th, 2001, I was actually at work, and I was a job in Queens. And um, when I got radio, it was 1010 winds, it was on radio, and I uh, heard that uh, a plane had crashed in the World Trade Center. Now, at first, you know, people didn't realize it was a commercial plane because not many, there's only, there only two camera shots of Flight 11 hitting the North Tower, and nobody really knew what happened. Uh, people didn't even see the plane because they were at a disadvantage either on the west, uh, the, the uh, more of the west side of town, than they couldn't see the eastern trajectory of Flight 11. So really, nobody really knew what was going on until we saw the hole into the side of the building, we knew it was a small plane. Um, I live nearby where I work. So I, we, I ran home and people would just, you know, we just left work because the boss said, all right, you know, we'll just shut down for the day because, uh, you know, this tragedy was going on. Got up on top of the roof. And if you're not familiar with Brooklyn, Queens there are different tenements. It's like different story tenements, three floors, four, four, five mm -hmm. floors. When I got to the third floor, on top of the roof, and there was thousands of people on their rooftops all across Brooklyn, Queens, Lower Manhattan. Then we saw the second plane crash into the uh, the South Tower. I couldn't see it from my advantage. I saw the big explosion 
come out of it and we knew it wasn't a mistake or a commercial uh, error. This was deliberate and everybody, you know, didn't know anything. We didn't know anything about Islamic terrorism or, or terrorism in general, but we knew that something was going on. Um, most of the day we spent on the roof and because it was a good advantage to see. And then we saw the tower collapse, South Tower first. And then we were blown away. I mean, there was really not much to say. I remember distinctly that there was a silence across. And people were gasping a little bit, but, you know, it wasn't very, uh, people weren't losing their head. It was just in shock. And then when the North Tower collapsed, it was just a near defeat of the of the consciousness of the people in New York. Days later, I walking around in days, most people, I didn't go back to work for another couple of days. It was less than a week. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it just. It was a defeat, more so a defeat. But then all of a sudden it was anger. Uh, two weeks later, I noticed there was a rise in upticks of violence against Sikhs, uh, Asians, and other Arabs and Sufis. And it was just out of ignorance. You know, people wanted revenge. And, you know, people didn't know anything about Islam. And, you know, at this time, it was just very, it was just ignorance. Years later, I was in Vegas and I was studying monotheism. I'm an atheist, but I was an anti-theist. I noticed that, you know, my way of thinking wasn't the right way because I became affiliated with one worldview. And I didn't, you know, I just generally assumed that all religions are like this. And it was another atheist that basically said, you know, you're very ignorant. And he's biblically illiterate. I really looked up to this guy. And I, I reflected. I said, yeah, why is he why is he criticizing me? I'm I'm like him. Right. And I so for a while, this bothered me. And I remember not being on the internet for about 10 months, almost close to a year, because I wanted to self-reflect what was wrong. And um, what was wrong was that I was persuaded by a, a human construct to look at one issue and only agree with one issue because that issue agreed with me. And I didn't look mm -hmm. at other worldviews, other issues that I didn't, you know, I just generalized as wrong. And this was a wrong way to think. And I, when I made this transition, this is a big issue why I'm a researcher today, is that this transition made me look at the world not through one worldview, but to look at every worldview and then look at every construct and not apply these constructs to me, but to look at the world not through black and white, but as gray, because that's what it is. And that's what helped me in my research. This transition was long ago. I mean, it took me a while, close to a year, but I had to look at the errors of my life. So I said, I would ne I'm never going to look at this as with other area of, of the world again. And it just so happened around 2000, I'd say five, six, 9-11. And I couldn't tell you why. And I think it was more of an interest because I came from New York. And I said, what do I really know? You know, I want to, because I studied uh, criminal psychology in college, forensic psychology, and it was always interest me, true crime. I have more books on true crime than 9-11. I have about 300 books on true crime. Um, so I'm really, I want to know why the motivation of these people more than, you know, the how and stuff like that, or how the towers collapsed. I'm not a physics guy, so I'm more psychological. So I wanted to know who these people were. And to tell you that from that point, I looked at films like Loose Change or In Plain Sight. And I, you know, I said, wow, you know, I didn't know about the planes at the Pentagon that left so few debris. And, you know, the plane, it would look like, doesn't look like a plane in Shanksville. Well, you know, this is not what I look like. You know, a regular plane crashes where they leave large pieces of the plane and stuff. What I didn't realize was that I'm looking at it the wrong way. So when I, when I looked at 
play the devil's advocate, and which is what I learned from monotheism. So I looked at Luke Haynes and in plain sight, I saw some errors. But I didn't believe it right away, which was a big, you know, I'm thankful for it. So I criticized, I said, all right, I don't want to believe something. I want to know something. So what was wrong with this? And I studied this. What's wrong with this? And I said, I took notes and stuff like that. And then I looked to see if it was right. And I found out they got some things wrong. In fact, they got most things wrong. Well, then, you know, what do I believe? Well, I go back to the source. So I need to read documents and files. The research took enormous amounts of time because I went overboard. You didn't have to be like this, but I really went minutia. And most of the research I've done over the last 16 years is basically fact-checking what I've learned over the years. Not reading what I learned over the years, but fact-checking what I've read. So with every book that I've read, with every document that I've read, every file that I've read, I would have to go to the reference to find out where that information came from and connect the dots from there to see if it's legitimate or it's coming from a nefarious source. How do I know which is true? Do I go back to physical evidence, uh, analytical evidence, eyewitness evidence. So I did all this. And this is what took most of the time. But I went, like I said, you know, I went the extra mile. And because I'm signal and I have a lot of time on my hands, so I could read a lot more than the average person. And over the years, I became an overanalyzer of data. And that's what I am today. You know, people ask me, am I a truther, debunker? I don't like labels. I consider myself an independent investigator of this specific point in history. That's all. I just took 9-11 and I didn't realize it would take me 16 years down the road. And I usually tell people I'm not an expert, I'm not a teacher, I'm still a student because I'm still learning. And there's always something new because documents are, hide, are hidden, they're, they're, they're classified, and over the years they're declassified. You learn something new each and every year. So you're always learning on the way. You know, you're not, you know, I don't like the term expert or, or professor or teacher in this area. Because it, I, I think that when something like 9-11, it's never really solved. It's We're still learning something new every day. On top of that, um, the direction it took me was a, a direction that I learned in life. And I'm very thankful for it because I don't, I'm not persuaded by ideology, in other words. I'm not biased. I'm not prejudiced. And one thing I said when I researched 9-11, I promised myself two things. One was to never make money off it because when I got into 9-11, I saw so many people just asking for money to learn about things. And they were talking about trivial things. And I said, you know, I, I, I want to help somebody. So I want to do it on my own time. And two, that I would try, and this is the most important lesson, was I wanted to try and remain steadfast in my honesty in reporting. Because I also found that during that period of 2006, 7, 8, was that there was a bias in reporting the events of September 11, 2001. In fact, it was a lot worse then than it was now. Um, because the fringe conspiracies attributed to 9-11 are just as bad as the non-information from the government that put out there. And the, you know, the incomplete reports of the 9-11 Commission and the Joint House Inquiry doesn't sit well with me either. So I'm like you said before the, the the show. I'm critical in both areas. So I'm 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 looking at it as a nonpartisan, non-judgmental, non-biased investigator. Which shouldn't everybody be looking at it that way? This way we can get further. We could probably solve a lot more crimes in the future. But it's unfortunate that a lot of people are persuaded by their own worldviews, by their own ideologies, to look at 
one set of information that agrees with the worldview. And hopefully, with this long-winded explanation, I'm making sense as to how I started and what drove me to where I am today. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's one thing I really do appreciate about your approach approach to this whole thing is that, you know, so many of us, and I've been guilty of stuff like this before too, we we get a whiff of something that's that's a miss on some event or another. We look into it, maybe we find that certain documentary, we see that documentary, and then we go, Oh my God. Oh my God. Well, now I know. Now I know. Now I know everything. I know the ex- these guys, you know, they they put a 90-minute piece together that was well made and it, it it triggered me. And especially if you're already in somewhat of an ideological place. For example, I, you know, I come from the libertarian podcast world, and uh, you know, there's a strong, obviously, anti-government sentiment within that, yeah. generally speaking, to the point that, you know, many people are are very quick to want to say, well, obviously the government did this or that and is, you know, whatever. And, and in certain cases they probably did. So I, it's a valid, it's a valid idea to have in your mind as, as something that may have gone down. But I think so many people are ready to embrace it so quickly without actually analyzing it, without actually looking at what the truth is. And if you're going to do that, then at the end of the day, you're sort of just as much of a propagandist as anyone that that's just blatantly lying to you because you're, you're not taking the care to get the truth out there because it, it fits your, you know, your ideology to just embrace the anti-government narrative right away. So I really do appreciate uh, your approach to things. And like you said, I mean, by the way, so you, you're saying you have no monetization of any of your work here, uh, anything no. you do. There's no way to even donate to you or anything. I won't accept. People have uh, wanted to give me donations. And I said, well, you know, give it to a, you know, organization that's, you know, helping with the victims' families or something. But I won't take a dime. Well, that and as you said, I mean that there are definitely many, many people in the quote unquote nine eleven truth uh, realm who definitely take dimes and lots of them. So that's uh, I mean, and I'm sure you could do, you probably could do the same work you do, generally speaking, and still make some decent money on it. But like you said, it can be corrupting as well. You know, that then do I have to make a, a flashier video? Do I have to right. make a more bombastic mm-hmm. statement? And yeah. before you know, you can be doing and saying things, not even really realizing that your work is being affected by the idea that you are going to get paid for it. And Plus, I don't, I don't feel like I do. I'm doing anything to earn the money anyway. I, you know, I still use Movie Maker. I'm old fashioned. Um, I still, uh, you know, I write articles. I have about 118 right now articles on Medium. I have uh, 3,400 videos uploaded on YouTube. I have um, o- almost 100 episodes on the Darkened Hour. I have 5,700 documents, files uploaded on WordPress. It, it only takes a couple of, you know, an hour or two to do all this. I read most of the time. But, I, you know, uploading this stuff, it doesn't take much. So that's why I don't feel like I earn the money anyway. So I, it would be, you know, as you said, you know, it w- I, w- I wonder if it would corrupt me. I just want to keep myself uh, honest and humble to where I am now. Well, you might be a little too humble because I can tell you, I, even though you might say it doesn't take a lot of work, it takes a lot of work to sit down, do a YouTube video, turn on the camera, upload, do all that stuff. So even if you don't feel like you're making it as fancy or flashy as maybe you could, uh, trust me, I know it takes work. So it's, it's definitely appreciated what you, what you put into yeah, it. Yeah, I don't, I, I said it myself, you know, I got to get better. You know, I, I shoot out my bedroom right here. So I don't, I don't have like a background and everything. I say, I don't care. I want people to see the human side of me and that, you know, I am coming from a place where they can, you know, hopefully trust, you know, I don't ask people to trust me either. I want people to actually, Hey, do I want, you know, how do I know this guy's telling me the truth? And I always tell people, don't believe anybody, even me, you know, I want you to take whatever points I'm making, you go and fact check, because that's exactly what I did. And that's how you build a movement. You build a movement of educated people, informed people, not people based on belief and conjecture. 
All right. Well, then uh, why don't we dovetail into and it's hard to know where to start with all this. And maybe maybe I'll just toss that question to you. What is the best place to start when looking at 9-11? What are just some of the basic things that people need to know going into looking at this event? The hardest question of all. Uh, look, you know, there is what I call a branch out effect when it comes to September 11, 2001. Unlike JFK, unlike RFK, unlike uh, any other major event in history, 9-11 was the pretext of a lot of things. And what came after 9-11 was worse than 9-11, and it's still ongoing. I call whatever happening after 9-11, from this point forward, the rest of our lives and to the future generations, the ripple effect of 9-11. Um, how would I do this? Uh, I would say probably you want to keep a reason not lose people, the 1979 invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union. Most of the major players of 9-11 came from this. Uh, when it comes to radical fundamentalism, when it comes to the intelligence services, how the intelligence services integrated with radical fundamentalism, uh, the, uh, the foreign institutions that later persuaded American politics like Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, that's Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, uh, future, the future plans of 9-11 came true through the pre, uh, pretext of foreign policy. Foreign policy guidelines are people who look at the world not like us. We're worried about what's, what's happening right now, and this is meant to distract us. Foreign policy analysts look at the world 10, 20 years, 30 years down the road. They're playing the long game because they don't have the stresses of everyday life of everyday Americans like you and me. So they don't have to worry about, you know, worrying about their jobs or, you know, how to pay the rent, you know, whether they're going to get food on time, whatever. These people are in very uh, influential positions of power, high positions of government. They don't have the problems like we do. So they, they can concentrate on the longer run about how to shape policy of everyday Americans, how to shape policy of foreign governments and domestic government as well. And what they do is they persuade uh, our uh, Department of State, the military industrial complex, to play this long game of foreign policy. And what they do is, is basically they're influenced by two major lobbies, and that's Israel and Saudi Arabia. Israel is more political, whereas Saudi Arabia is more financial. So there's two different games here. Israel has a stronger connection to the United States because we have the largest uh, Zionist lobby in the uh, Zionist population in the United States, and that's the evangelical Christian. They're not Jewish. With, with Saudis, we don't share much in common. That's why they pay more money, and more money comes with more influence in politics. And what happens is with 9-11 is that with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, this created a a fanaticism that the United States brewed. They didn't create it, but they helped facilitate it. It's all they needed. Hey, look, you don't need to create a bad guy when there's already a bad guy who isn't strong enough. And all you're doing is giving him the necessary tools and means to become a stronger, badder influence. And you know exactly what they're going to do. You know exactly what their uh, capabilities are because and this is speculation to a point, but not too crazy. You have contacts within these groups. It's not so hard to infiltrate a group like Al Qaeda or the Taliban or the Islamic State. You know, even though they have their own security apparatuses, they're not. Uh, you know, they're not strict to the extent where you can have somebody in the Middle East act as an operator inside these groups to gain intelligence to find out what these groups are actually thinking. 
And so this is not too far outside the fringe. This is a conspiracy speculation, but it's reasonable speculation. There's a difference. So when you have these groups that are basically like Operation Cyclone, which was a CIA operation in Afghanistan that gave hundreds of millions, I think billions of dollars, and not just the United States CIA, which was going through the Pakistan ISI to help these groups get weapons and training and whatnot. And all of a sudden, these groups became bigger. And when the war ended, the Soviets retreated. Well, all these people with the training and the money that they provided, they went back to their home countries. Where'd they go? Well, Southeast Asia, Pakistan, Indonesia, Philippines, Great Britain, France, Germany, United States. And what happened was with this radical ideology that the United States knew what was brewing, they went back with all the training and all the funding and all the military weapon training, and they went back to their home states and they created themselves an enemy. And that enemy was radical fundamentalism, which has nothing to do with Islam as a religion. Nevertheless, that's a whole different argument and conversation in its own right. Nevertheless, the United States knew what they were doing because they replaced one enemy, which was the Cold War, Russia, Soviet Union, with another enemy. So this way, the war and the machine, Pentagon machine, will continue onwards. As Orwell said in 1984, war was never meant to be won. It's meant to be continuous. Well, here you have a transition from the Cold War to Arab fundamentalism. And this took up the next, I'd say, 10, 12 years, right between. And what happens was it created terrorism inside the United States. So what came after the Soviet Union? Well, we had the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, which was basically the pretext for the war of Iraq. But we didn't basically go to war with Iraq, even though we had foreign policy guidelines blaming Iraq for the 93 bombing. Uh, one particular journalist, Laurie Malroy, uh, basically uh, threw propaganda into the media saying that, oh, there was an Iraqi who was in charge of building the bomb, Ramzi Youssef, because Ramzi Youssef used a fake passport, which was an Iraqi passport. He's not Iraqi. He's from Baluchistan, Pakistan. So he used an Iraqi passport. And the media and, of course, the neocons and of George Bush Sr. ran with it and tried to blame Iraq for the 93 bombing. From 93, we saw the elements of that bombing go to the elements of a Bajinka plot. Not many people know about the Bajinka plot. Uh, Mark, have you ever heard about the Bajinka plot? I, this sounds familiar, but I can't say I can, I can really say what it is. But the, the, well, the term idea of, sounds familiar. Yeah, the idea of the 9-11 of the operation came from Bajinka plot. And the, the masterminds behind the Bajinka plot came from partly the mastermind of the 93 bombing, Ramzi Youssef, trained in Operation Cyclone. And his uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who later is the alleged mastermind of 9-11. And what they wanted to do was basically put Timex bombing watches filled with nitroglycerin into 12 planes coming from the United States and from Southeast Asia to the United States and have them all explode over the, over the Pacific at one minute intervals. And this would kill uh, over 2000 people. But that wasn't just the, that was one phase. The second phase was to assassinate the U.S. President Bill Clinton, but his security detail was too strong. So what they did was they replaced Bill Clinton with Pope John Paul II because he was visiting the Philippines. Because Ramzi Youssef, after he built the bomb to build for the bombing of the World Trade Center, he fled to the Philippines. And they started working on Project Pajinka, Operation Pajinka. And he was visiting the Philippines. So what they were going to do was they were going to dress as priests and have a bomb in a bag and have his motorcade explode. Then there was a third up of phase of this operation. 
And it comes from an associate named Abdul Hakim Murad. And he basically was a pilot and he was trained in the United States on flight training. And he was going to offer himself as a martyr instead of looking because he said that now they're going to be looking for bombs. Well, why don't, you know, why don't we just take the plane and crash it into the world, you know, into CIA Langley headquarters? Then later on, there was a hidden compartment to this operation. And this is where the idea of 9-11 came from. And this came from uh, the interrogation of Abdul Hakim Murad because Operation Pajinka was was uncovered when they were making bombs in the sink and it created this black smoke, this thick, you know, these guys didn't think right. So this thick black smoke came out of the windows and doors and firemen came, policemen came. So Ramzi Youssef, who was helping Abdul Hakim Murad making these bombs, they, they ran, but they left the laptop, which was all the operation behind and the names of all the people funding this operation. And so Ramzi Yusuf told Abdul Hakim Murad to go back and get the laptop. And he did, unbelievably. And when he went up the stairs, they all looked. He ran away. They caught him. Anyway, cut right to the chase. Wow, they interrogated him. And he related a, sec- a hidden compartment of Pajinka. And this was that there was a hidden cell inside the United States. And that um, they were going to hijack 10 planes and have them crash all over into the continent of the United States using the policy's martyrdom operations. Remember, this is 1995. And we're going to crash into Sears Tower, the the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, Empire State Building, uh, U.S. Capitol, the White House, and a nuclear facility. There was other programs as well. Now, the intelligence services, they were monitoring Bin Laden's satellite phone. Now, remember, Bin Laden's connected to all this somehow. And also, Bin Laden's satellite phone he was using since 1992, and the CIA was and the NSA was listening to this how when he was living in Khartoum. He used Sudan. that same phone for for years. He was using that phone from what we know from the public record from 1992 to 1998. That's a yeah. lot of calls. That seems pretty weak for a you know a mastermind. You'd think he'd switch those out, or you know, what do I know? Well, he, in 1998, he did, and the reason why he did this is because the New York Times actually wrote in a report that Bin Laden was using a satellite phone, and this he, he lost the phone. That was it. That was it. But you would think, you know, here's a guy using a satellite phone, which was bought from him at a Long Island storefront in New York, and it was shipped to him through in a connect in Virginia, and it went to Torbor, Afghanistan, and to the Sudan, where he was living. So, I mean, just imagine the amount of metadata. Now, the NSA doesn't hide this, because they collected so much data. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up and why this is all connected to 9-11 is that I'm trying to connect the radical fundamentalist part with the intelligence part, because the intelligence services knew about Bin Laden many years prior, almost 10 years prior to 9-11, maybe even way further than that. But from the public record, We'll keep it recent. So, so from nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety eight, they were listening to every single phone call. I, I, the, the amount of minute is enormous. Anyway, one number kept popping up on this phone, and it was huge. This is the reason why. And this is this is the biggest point of nine eleven to me. Anyway, it's it's so big. So this number was traced back to Yemen. Who is who's calling Bin Laden? Why is he calling this person? Finds out that this person name is Ahmed Ahada. Is a nobody, but he knew Bin Laden from Afghanistan days. Anyway, he owns a house in Yemen. And what happens is this became the global Al-Qaeda communications hub. In other words, if there's another, if there's an Al-Qaeda 
operative living in Egypt who is so strict, uh, Syria, so strict when it comes to listening to phone calls about radicals because they hate radicals. So they would they would really repress them. They would pull, could put a call to this house and say, I need to have a message and it would be coded or whatever, or send a message over this line to Yemen where they're not listening to the phone calls because Yemen has the second biggest Al-Qaeda network in the world. And they would connect it to another Al-Qaeda somewhere in the world. So this went on for years. The NSA listened to the phone calls of this house from 1996 to 2000. The house in Yemen where everything yeah. was running through? Okay. Yeah. So they were listening to the phone calls every single of every single number from Bin Laden's satellite phone, every single phone call coming out of this house. Now the CIA gets involved. Because they're like, wow, you know, this is a big, this is a big operation. We're going to be in charge of it. So they took over. So they put a bug in the house. So now you have two intelligence services listening to everything on the face. And also the CIA does what the NSA doesn't is that human, human, um, uh, human intelligence, human, it's called in short. SIGINT is signal intelligence. So they're looking at all the people, taking pictures of people. So they so they they know what's going on. Now, the only thing we don't know is specifics. What were they talking about on those phone calls? Well. Picture yourself as an Al-Qaeda operative. Are they going to be like you and me talk about the Yankees, you know, the mundane things? No. These are serious men. They're talking about operations. Talking about people involved with operations. Talking about where the money is coming from. So I'm putting that idea in your head to think that, all right, what were they talking about in these things? What came from them? Well, after that came the 1990 East Africa bombings, Millennium Plot of 2000, and 9-11. Now, I can't prove that they knew about 9-11 beforehand. So in your in this long-winded answer, it's really hard to answer the question about where to start from, but with the without going all totally off the rails and branching out, I would say 79 invasion of Afghanistan, 93 bombing of World Trade Center, Bajinka plot, 98 East Africa bombings, Millennium plot, 9-11. And what you'll get from all this is how radical fundamentalism and the intelligence services intertwine. And then it'll start to make sense. And I hope I didn't lose you with that long answer. No, not at all. This is all the groundwork we need. So I, so you're saying, are you saying then that if they were already listening at that time before the Africa bombings, for example, did, would you assume that they? it's quite a, an assumption you could make that the intelligence services knew about that as well before that happened? This is a tough question. Now, look, it would be not unreasonable to speculate, and believe me, use out a grain of salt, huge grain, um, to say that was the 98 East Africa bombings talked about in these phones? Very well could be. Not only that, you already had an operative that was involved with the East Africa bombings named Ali Muhammad. And I don't want to lose the viewer or the listener. Ali Muhammad was an informant for two intelligence services, the CIA and the FBI. He was also a radical fundamentalist. So he was playing three He's agents. He's a, a triple agent. You can yeah, say. he was a triple agent. He's currently in WITSEC. We don't know what happened to him. It's been 22 years after 9-11. We have never heard from him again. Like he'd be working and at a was, Starbucks now or something. probably. Like, I, I don't know what, what he's doing. He could be dead. I don't know. But he's a huge, uh, major player in all this because he is from the Afghan war because he was trained from there. He came to the United States, became involved with uh, training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, then he, you know, he went to uh, with Bin Laden. 
um, trained some of the people involved with the 93 bombing, trained with some of the people involved with the 98 Africa bombings. I mean, this guy's all over the place, but he's not alone. There were other informants and operatives that came out and said, tried to warn intelligence officials, hey, there's a bombing going to happen in, in Africa. Weeks before, an Egyptian involved with the bombing said, listen, there's a cell inside. Hey. So in other words, not only can we speculate that they probably knew or didn't know, we don't know the specifics, but you had warnings. And one warning came from Prudence Bushnell, who is a U.S. ambassador to um, Kenya, who basically said that the security apparatus of the United States found that there were lapses and there was warnings about bombing, you know, embassies, no stricter security measures. Sound familiar? That's exactly what happened with 9-11, where there was warnings all throughout 2000, 2001. Hey, Bin Laden's going to try to attack the United States and he's attacking the airline services. No stricter security measures. It lacks. So that's about as definitive as I can answer regarding that. So, I mean, it, it, it's as you as you kind of say, like, because we can't listen to the calls. We don't know what they right. actually heard on there. So we can't really prove in any way. OK, exactly. they definitively heard this. And then they said, well, we're just going to not do anything about it. Right. Um, but it's reasonable to assume that if that was the main hub of all this of all these operations we're going through and then all these operations happened and we know they were being listened to. It's, it's not a reasonable well, way you called it. It's reasonable to speculate, at least. Yeah, and also I'm so glad you brought it up. Thank you very much. Because why? And you're asking, so all right, why why would they want these attacks to happen? Think about what I said before about foreign policy. Not everybody's a ghoul, all right, but you do have certain people that are persuaded by the long run and say, well, if we allow these attacks to happen, we could basically take advantage. And you know, if you have a stake in a in a military industrial complex like Halliburton or LG3 Technologies or Raytheon or Boeing, or maybe you have high contacts within, you know, somebody persuasive in Israel or Saudi Arabia, basically saying, um, you know, maybe we could want this to happen, or maybe it's so compartmentalized that you don't know what's basically going to happen. Maybe you're trying your best to track these people, but you lost track of them because you're not getting the proper information. Some of there's so many variables at play, but very few people. I would say very few, I'm confident, that would want these attacks to happen. But the majority of the want of the people that would want these attacks to happen are from the United States. And I'm going to be careful about the two countries that I will mention, that I mentioned previously, that would benefit them very greatly. So again, yeah, you, you, we, again, I think, you can look at who will benefit. I, I think what you said earlier is pretty interesting that about how there's these foreign policy guys. I don't know. You might call them like a, a, a Brzezinski, a Kissinger, this type of person, I, I suppose, who's there, you know, hanging out there. They live a totally different society than us. You know, they're not worried about even forget, like, you know, paying the rent or they're not even worried about if there's a bombing here or shooting here. Like these are not things that are going to affect them at all. And if they're looking at things on a sort of global long-term 30, 40 year out scale, yeah, sure. Who cares about a stupid ship getting bombed or this building blowing up or some civilians dying? If these little pieces, if these little movements, if these little events here and there can lead to our longer term goals of controlling this region or getting involved here, if, if that will play into those goals to someone with that mindset, ah, a little bombing here and there, you know, might not bother them at all. 
Compare 9-11 to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and it pales in comparison. 3,000 people died. That's a, a tragedy. It's, it's enormous. A, it's an afternoon in Iraq during that. Well, one. then what does that mean for Iraq? Right. A million. And that's being liberal with the number. And we won't know the definitive number. According to Human Rights Watch, it's a million point four. If we go by Amnesty International, it's a million point two. Uh, we really don't know the definitive number, but it's it's a lot more than a million because look who we bombed. We bombed Iraq. We bombed Afghanistan. Afghanistan, the longest war in U.S. history. Uh, after that, I mean, you know, we got Obama. Hope and change. Well, nothing changed and nothing was hopeful because we bombed Syria and we bombed Libya. And from there, we drone strike Pakistan. Um, so the, the Middle East became the victim in all this, not just the United States. In fact, they were the bigger victim of 9-11 than the United States was. And there are obviously sort of like, like many little detailed rabbit holes to go down within the, the looking at the idea that of the intelligence networks, what they knew, when they knew it, who within what knew, what agency knew about what. There's a lot of different directions you can go. But at the end of the day, I think your your general thesis, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll let you expound, is that at a minimum, it's very likely that 9-11 was known about to an extent enough that it was at the very least allowed to happen by some within the intelligence community. Now, going further than that, there are people that will go further than that. I don't think you do, but um, is that, would that be your overall, like, if you're just going to take a, a big picture view of your work, would you say that that is the general premise that you would accept at this point, that it was at least allowed, at least by some elements of, of intelligence? I will answer it like this. I can make a very good argument to the best of my ability, that they allowed this to happen. I appreciate how careful you are with, with the way you, way you phrase things like this. I have to be. Because I don't most people be... in the in the truther world are not. You know, they say, no, I, George I Bush did this, this guy did, you know, they, they just yeah. put it all out there. So. Well, I mean, yeah, I, would, I, would, I can make a very good argument that they allowed it to happen. And that's being very bold, right? Because what I'm, all right, who's involved with the allowing it? Because you can't say the entire intelligence community. That's out the window. Sorry, now you got to be specific. And to be specific, you got to have information. You can't just say, like you said, you know, it's easy to blame George Bush, Tom Rumsfeld. Let me tell you something. George Bush doesn't know nothing. Tom Rumsfeld doesn't know nothing. They know the basics. And you know why? It's because they're in front of a TV camera. The people who would know specifics are the people that don't want to be known, that aren't out in the public face or the public sphere, and, you know, less likely to be known by anyone involved with the public uh, public sphere is because that's how you could compartmentalize a crime you don't want the public facing figures to really know sure. everything you know you just want them to be okay go out to say the thing you have to say you want them to have the plausible deniability of legit genuinely not really knowing about this stuff i would think anyway oh there you go I, you just hit the point in the head plausible deniability in other words uh bush bush may know an attack is upcoming because there was a uh, document and it's most infamous known as the August 6th Presidential Daily Brief with the PDB, where it says Bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States. And it basically warns about, hey, Bin Laden is going to strike the United States. But it didn't get specific. It just warned about it. Now, that's all President Bush needs to know. All right, there's going to be a strike. All right, well, you, you can you could say that, all right, he knew that much. Go further? I dare you. Because you won't be able to make that connection. There's no proof that he knew that plane was going to be hijacked on September 11, 2001. In fact, I would say very few people knew. But the people that knew probably 
are not out in front of the TV and, you know, act like an idiot like President Bush is. Do you want that guy knowing everything? No. Anyway, um, but yeah, I would say um, I can make a very good government that few people in the intelligence services wanted this to happen and few people in foreign policy analysts wanted this to happen. And I don't think they knew about the specific season. They just know maybe there's a something brewing. And if whenever, and to take advantage. right. Whenever that to take advantage. Right. boils They're over, opportunists. Right. They're opportunists. Um, I like to look at maybe we've, we've talked about RK, what maybe kind of the government angle of it, what the intelligence agencies might've been in on. I want to kind of pivot over for a minute because like we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. you're very critical of a lot of the nine 11 truth movement. So well, let's just start with loose change actually. Cause that, that's the first movie I saw that I, I didn't have a inkling of a conspiracy thought in my mind, I think at that point in my life. And I, I stumbled upon that video and yeah, I, I was like, Whoa, like, you know, there was stuff in there that just made me go, hold on. And and I think there's probably, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to say because I haven't watched it in a long time. So there's a lot of, lot of specifics I probably don't really even recall. But um, it, it certainly sent me down a, a, a rabbit hole of sorts. Uh, but I, I'm curious, what, what are some of the things in that film that now that you are far enough removed on it, you said they got some things. Well, why don't we start with this? That you said they may have got a few things right. Is there anything you actually think they do have right or are, are on to something right in whether you want to talk about loose change or just like out there in the 9-11 truth community, are, are there areas where they're on to the right things that you can think of? Sure. And this is an excellent question because usually people want to concentrate on, on what was wrong and that's a long list, but the, mm -hmm. the right things they got right was that um, there was a conspiracy involving the federal government at the, at the white house level, state department level um, regarding the intelligence community few things they got right there uh there was a conspiracy involving a uh a willful um not willing to share all the information with other intelligence services so they 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 wanted to pour light on this and one thing i i will get the biggest i think um uh i guess the biggest praise i could give the film is that it did help with a global consciousness of getting people outside to think, hey, wait a minute, something is wrong here. The one, the, the major takeaway from it was that they looked in the wrong dead ends. They, it was a dead end of what they were looking at. But it did tell people, hey, look, you know, this narrative that the government had, not only is it wrong, but I would say that that's not the way to look at it either. But it's also there's another narrative to it, and this is the conspiracy narrative. The, the one the, the the things that they got wrong was that there was a lot of minutia that they just went off the rails on in terms of like no plane in the Pentagon, no plane crash Shanksville, living hijackers, phone calls being fake. All that is wrong. And anyway, what happens is when you don't have hijackers, when you don't have phone calls, when you have fake planes, when you don't have plane crashes, you don't have a crime. You have a half what I call a half a crime. In other words, there might have been hijackers planning this to be out. But they didn't, from September 11th forward, they didn't hijack the planes. They were somehow switched, or they were somehow missiles. There was somehow CGI. What happens is, all of a sudden, if this happens, when you don't have hijackers, you don't have the intelligence services monitoring these people. When you don't have the intelligence services monitoring these people, you don't have a connection between them and the foreign uh, governments involved with policy. And if you don't have all of this, you don't have the invasion of Iraq, you don't have the invasion of Afghanistan, you don't have the Patriot Act, you don't have none of these things, because nothing is the pretext for anything. So in other words, 
Now you're stuck. Before 9-11, you're stuck at ground zero. You're stuck at the Pentagon. You're stuck at Shankville. And there's no forward movement. There's no re there's no progression. In other words, when a person believes these certain conspiracies, fringe conspiracies, there's no forward momentum, no forward learning. In other words, they don't learn anything new because it's attached to this area, which they call the official narrative. And from my experience, Mark, and it could be wrong for you. It could be different for you. It could be a business from my experience of dealing with the, the fringe element of the truth movement. The fringe element of the truth movement thinks that the official narrative is the following. That the World Trade Centers, one, two, and seven, came down by a natural progression. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, a natural progression of fire. And that 19 fundamentalists hate our freedoms, hijacked four planes and crashed me at the World Trade Center. Shankville and the Pentagon. That's it. There is no before. There is no after. To them, the official narrative is this one very narrow doorway, and they concentrate on it. So they look at it in a bubble. So they're missing very all, all the context so. around it, is what you're saying. And because of their worldviews that I mentioned, which I thought is very important to understand, because they are so distrustful of the government. And because a lot of these people, you'll notice the backgrounds that these people are very distrustful of the government and blame the government before even investigating 9-11. They only looked at certain information that agreed with that worldview and found or created these fringe conspiracies of missiles, CGI, hologram, to make the government this big, nebulous, um, monolithic, or omniscient, omnipresent entity, when the reality is they're just human, just like us. But the evil is their apathy and what they're willing to do. In some ways, you could say that they're kind of worshiping the state in a way because they're the ones yes. turning it into this like all powerful, all seeing, yeah. like sort of monolithic entity as opposed to humans that are have incentives and many of which are powerful. And yeah, many of which do bad things. But that's different right. than being one sort of entity that moves as a, as a hive mind. Right, exactly. And what this does is create in, in, in the irony of their position is that there's they think they're doing harm to the state, but they're helping it because you're not looking at the right uh, information that can actually show a real conspiracy with 9-11. It's huge, but they are blanketed by these ridiculous fringe theories. So the truth movement basically does more harm than good. Now, this is not a generalization of the truth movement because I met certain truthers that are vilified by fringe elements. You know, people like David Chandler and Wayne Costi and Ken Jenkins, these are, you know, reputable people that have good, reputable backgrounds that don't believe in the crazy stuff. But they're actually criticized, but their fellow truthers that believe in the fringe elements because they're very cultish, these people. They're very loyal to their groups until you break out, and then they, they show no loyalty at all. So in other words, you know, there's a lot of infighting, fraternal fighting. In time, what this did was, because people don't learn anything new, because they're so fraternal and sectarian, it destroyed the truth movement from within. And the truth movement of 2006, seven, when Loose Change came out, was so strong, now they're non-existent. Because these people don't learn anything new, and they don't have organization anymore. And a lot of these organizations, too, like Loose Change had a forum. Uh, there was a forum called Let's Roll Forums, you know, a policy 9 11 truth. Um, all these, they're being. I've, I've been in all of those in my day. I'm pretty sure. Oh, back did you? Oh, yeah, so back you're familiar with these groups. Yeah, they were huge. Now, no, they're all defunct. It's like before social media, I was in all these, you know, just 
going through these weird forums. And I was, I was pretty obsessed with 9-11 for a while. Not, not to the extent of doing research in the right way like you do, but reading like everything I could find on it. Sure. And, you know, these, and these were big names. You know, Loose Change is still the most popular 9-11 film in the world. At the time, they were like rock stars. You know, Jason Burmas, Dylan Avery, and Cora Rowe, they were huge. And I think because they were young, it allowed them. I know I'm very critical of them, but I'm not doing it because I'm like, I'm an, I'm an asshole. I hate to curse, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying to help them. You know, listen, we need you to be right because we need an educated public. And what you did was you created more damage than good. And we need you to rectify that. And they refused to do it. So uh, I'm, I'm a very open, very, not as much as I used to be, but I'm a very harsh cr critic when it comes to French conspiracy because they do more harm than good. Because I had this naivety in me, I don't know, uh, just this naivety in me, even though I'm a pessimist, uh, that we're going to get some form of justice one day. Because if I stop believing that is when I stop studying 9-11. What do you think justice would look like then? Do you, would you see it as actually like literally identifying actual individuals that def definitively we can point to you knew about this you allowed it to happen and we're going to bring charges of some kind do you think that or do you think that's actually feasible in some way i think the the only successful trial that we have is currently now and it's in the southern district of new york with the the civil litigation civil litigation case against saudi arabia and this is coming from two law firms Motley Rice and Creedlin Creedler. They're representing the 9-11 victims' families. Groups like 9-11 Justice, headed by Brett Eagleson. I just interviewed him. 9-11 uh, Peaceful Tomorrows by Elizabeth Miller. I interviewed her. There's other like activists. I mean, the best activists in the world. Mark Fallon, um, Aldo Prakhan, uh, um, Maru, um, uh, um, God, uh, Dan Christensen, a Florida Bulldog, uh, Muhammad Al-Slahi, a former Guantanamo prisoner of 16 years. I had the honor of interviewing him. He's an activist now. There's a lot of Maria Hartwig of Althea organization. There's, so there's a lot of like names, uh, activists, big names. Mansur Afridi is another one who's a former Guantanamo DJ. There's a lot of activists out there. Dan Chris, like I said, Dan Chris, both Florida Bulldog. So there's they're out there. These are the biggest names out there. I mean, I'm missing some. But there's no other trial. Now, I have an idea. And my idea is something that I don't think anybody's come up with, dare to say. And that is to request a, a Freedom of Information Act on the transcripts of what was said on those phone calls at Bin Laden satellite phones and the Al-Qaeda communications up. From my acknowledge from my studying of 9-11, I have never seen anyone do this. I messaged Thomas Drake, the former senior executive, senior executive at NSA and the most important whistleblower of my time. And I told him, I said, Tom, is it realistic? I messaged him on Twitter. I said, Tom, is it realistic to file a freedom of information request requesting this? And he told me this. He said, it'll be hard on you. It'll be protected under some executive order and uh, probably is classified most definitely. And it'll be very hard. And I said, ah, damn it. A friend of mine named Brotherton looked up the executive order and said, look, there's a 25 year warrant, like 25 year expiration date on the Bin Laden satellite phone. He said, we probably could, but it's going to be classified because we're just regular 
citizens. But he said, it wouldn't hurt to try. And I put it off. And I said, I'm going to need lawyers for this. And that's hard to do. Who wants to take up a case? It's going to be risky. Uh, we, you know, uh, we can we get it? Um, so I'm going to wait until what this trial in Southern District of New York looks like, and it's going to be finalized in October. Whether the judge actually agrees to continue the case or not. As for the biggest trial in our lifetime, which is the Guantanamo trial, the five guys allegedly mass minds and 9/11. Right, they've been there for uh, what? <laughs> 20 well, years yeah. now. I mean, I mean, older than some of the people born after yeah, yeah. they're there. Hey, listen, you know, that's, a, that's another argument, you know, like how much did they know? How much planning did they go on to? Because if they're guilty, like the government says, so there was no need to torture these people. And so even, like I said, even if they admitted their part, even if they were guilty, Hey, I orchestrate nine 11. How can we believe them? Because they were tortured. And I think the CIA did this so that the public consciousness doesn't make a decision, a right decision of yes or no. They want us to believe they're, they're, they're evil. They want us to believe they're guilty. But they also want to believe that there could be some doubt that they're innocent. In other words, indecision, because indecision paralyzes us. And without and with conspiracy and, and whatnot. You got it. Mm -hmm. with, that, with paralyzation comes inaction. All right, well... There's a, there's a few areas I want to kind of look at, probably areas that are, I would say, the most glaring in the on the maybe conspiracy side of things and things that have, to me, looked the most suspect and maybe won't get to all of them here. Maybe we'll save some of them for the smoke-filled room, the bonus segment. But, well, first, I want to look at some of the individuals that that maybe seem suspect. One, one individual in particular that is pointed out in the Loose Change documentary, and that is Larry Silverstein, who owned both the World Trade Center Towers and I believe... I don't have this stuff in front of me, but I believe it wasn't that long before that there was some renewed insurance policy. And so for a lot of reasons, he has become someone as seen as as a suspicious figure, at least by the the loose change sort of like 9-11 truth crowd. So do you have any thoughts on Larry Silver? It's such a dead end. And I'll tell you why. I think he's suspicious as heck, but that doesn't mean a damn thing. What Loose Change tried to do was connect him to foreknowledge of the events of September 11, 2001. I don't know how they did this, but to imply this in a film uh, is it takes guts. And, um, you know, they weren't definitive, but it goes like this. Silverstein Properties wanted to lease the World Trade Center for 99 years because the owner of the World Trade Center is the Port Authority. They own the World Trade Center. They own the land. So. It was a 99-year lease that was up for bid, and Silverstein Properties lost in, I think, March of 2001. The original winners of the bid were Vornado Realty, um, and they actually won the bid by, I think, $33 million more than Silverstein Properties. However, they argued about certain, uh, certain provisions within uh, the lease. I don't know the specifics of it, but... What happened was they pulled out of the deal. So when they pulled out, Silverstein Properties was the next up, and they won the rights to lease the property. However, Silverstein Properties, along with Westlake Incorporated, which was co-joined with uh, Silverstein Properties, they didn't have enough money. So they got, uh, I forgot the name of the person that gave them like this loan to you know, lease the 90-year lease. And basically, they, they got the rights to one, two, three, four, five, 
And Larry Silverstein actually owns World Trade Center 7. He's the, that's the only building he actually owns. So what happens was they, they got the year lease. And in August of 2001, because the World Trade Center was a previous victim of terrorism in 1993, of course, there was always that, that you know, the threat matrix. And of course, with lawyers and with, um, you know, intelligence services that were involved, they basically gave, you know, reports to these insurers and said, yeah, the World Trade Center has always been a target and we want you to take, you know, in, you know, these, the proper necessary security apparatus to ensure your building doesn't become a threat. So they hired, you know, a number of, of different uh, security apparatus. One was Securicom, which, of course, on top of the involved with the board of directors was a uh, Governor Jeb Bush of Florida. Uh, he he left in 2000, so he wasn't involved with 2001. So he left, but um, they were in charge of camera security, and there was also security provided by Port Authority, and of course, Crow. Crow is a uh, physical security involved. There was a lot of layers involved. So Blue's change basically said that oh, Silverstein took out this insurance policy for terrorism insurance in August 2001, and that's suspicious. No, it's not, because you had the threat daily matrix reports coming in that saying the World Trade Center, because it was a previous terrorism, uh, victim of terrorism in 93, it should be, you know, that you take out insurance terrorism to ensure that if you, in the future, have insurance, if you're becoming a victim of terrorism again, you're properly insured. And damn it to be, you know, this goes with every major building in New York, not just with the World Trade Center, Empire State Building, uh, World Trade Center 7, or a lot of big build, Chrysler Building, big build, Empire State Building too. They have a terrorism insurance. Why isn't everybody talking about that? So they have this terrorism insurance for all these buildings because they're all part of the threat matrix in New York. So it wasn't as suspicious. Now, what's suspicious is every day Silverstein's on top of the um, – the restaurant, I forgot the name of the restaurant, forgive me, that he goes for breakfast every day. On September 11th, he wasn't there. That's why I would consider him suspicious. Now, could I make the leap and say, oh, he got a call by somebody saying, don't be there? I can't go that far. But what I can say is that could that possibly have happened? Absolutely, because he wasn't there. Now, of course, he made a dermatologist appointment because his wife reminded him, say, don't forget your dermatologist appointment just so happens on September 11, 2001. That's as far as I'm going. Um, for him saying, pull it, you know, the building, demolition of his own building. Um, I'm not a physics guy. I don't go this route because I would, I would probably say, go to somebody who's much more qualified to speak on this. And because I'm not, an authority on this and I'm, i'll I'll self-admit that much i don't talk about the de like demolition or one two and seven could could there have been bombs i think there were because people heard explosions in all three of these buildings i i mainly deal with data did you say you do think that you do think there were or you don't, or you don't? i think yes I, I listen i interviewed david for example i'll do this so i won't not answer it david chandler once told me Think of it like this. If the planes crash into the World Trade Center and they somehow stood, what would this mean subliminally? For, and he had told this, what would this mean subliminally? What kind of message? And I thought about it. I said, I could, I don't know. Well, what could it be? He goes, it would, re, it would say, we took your best shot and now it's our turn. But with the, the, with the, the collapse, 
of the two biggest and strongest buildings in the entire United States. The, you know, New York being, you know, the big bragged tough, you know, we're the toughest in the whole country, you know, we're braggadocious. These are the biggest buildings on earth. They're the financial capital world. When those towers came down, it sent the message and it said, we destroyed your buildings. And if we could get to them, we could get to you anywhere in the world. And it, what this did was it created a subliminal consciousness of defeat and this change in New York. And I live in New York. Okay. Yeah. I moved to Vegas. I came back to New York and I could tell you this. It's a completely different New York. It's not as braggadocious. It's a tourist capital. You know, a lot of this tough guy attitude, it's gone. That was destroyed once those towers came down. So I understood what he was telling me. And I said, what would ensure it? Could they possibly just have the faith that it would just be the planes? And that's why I believe, I don't know it, but I believe that there were bombs in the building that did, that went off. I can't tell you definitively whether I, because it's not my area. Go to people like Wayne Chandler. Go to people like Ken Jenkins, David Chandler, Tony Zambotti. Go to those people. I couldn't tell you. Now, if you want to be right, if you want to play devil's advocate, you go to NIST, both sides, somewhere in the middle, someone's telling the truth. That's how I do it. Play devil's advocate. Don't go by one side. Don't go by the other side. Somewhere in the middle is the truth. Um, but I don't do this because I'm terrible in physics. Uh, I'm, I'm good with geopolitics, I think. And I, I'll, you know, I'm not an expert there, but I'll, I'll, I'm much more confident in that area. But yeah, I do think. To ensure the building collapsed, yeah, they, uh, there was bombs. Interesting. And that, that adds a whole nother layer of, of questions yeah. of, of how they got there and maybe who knew about bombs. And and do they intentionally leave that out of the investigation because they want to just be focused on the planes, right. the planes, the planes. We don't want to think about what else might have been involved in getting all that. But, you know, whether whether you like it or not, uh, uh, Adam, I, you know, just, just you saying you believe it's possible even to many people would put you, uh, no matter what, in the realm of crazy, wacky conspiracy doodle. So... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I think I lost an interview, a prospective interview, because they were afraid because I interviewed like people like Adam Taylor and David Chandler. And because, you know, I allowed them to speak their mind, but I didn't go up to crazy because they're not crazy fringe. So I, I think that scared away certain people. Um, but also I want to harp on something, too, and I'll just make it real short. How did they get the bombs in the building? Like, how how is this possible now? The loose change explanation, I think, is something with, you know, a, a George Bush connected security company and, yeah, I, and maybe thermite paint or, or something like that. I, I imagine yeah. you don't buy that by that. Theory. No, I don't. Look, you don't need to go that far. You with the 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 the, uh, the main goal of all intelligence services is to collect information by whatever means, human signals, illegal, legal. Just get the information. OK. If you, if we go back to those phone calls, if we had to speculate that they knew that these attacks were going to happen, that they knew these specific targets were picked, well, you can manipulate the plot. In other words, what I'm saying is you may have somebody in the intelligence service hearing about specifics, telling somebody, whoever that is, their supervisor, that supervisor goes to foreign or domestic governments at the highest levels, the only the highest levels. And relay that information. We need this to happen. In other words, all right, we know they're going to pick the World Trade Center, for example. Let's make sure these towers came down. I'm speculating here, not speaking on factual information. 
In other words, I'm trying to give you an, a gauge of how these bombs could have been there prior to 9-11. If they knew these operations were going to take place, if they knew these targets were going to be selected. And I can't say, because like you said before, we don't know what's on those phone calls. That's why I'm trying to say, if somebody, somebody more powerful than me, somebody with major influence can get those transcripts, we can know about 9-11. Right there, to me, this is the backbone of 9-11. Did they know, was 9-11 planned on those phone calls? Either it's Al-Qaeda or it's not. It's either or. We'll know when we listen to those phone calls. Because if Al-Qaeda doesn't talk about 9-11, then that means Al-Qaeda either didn't talk about 9-11 or wasn't involved in 9-11. Then who the hell are these people? If they were talking about 9-11 and they spoke at these specific targets and the intelligence services didn't tell us, well, then guess what? Now it's a we could blame either way. It's a pro or con. In other words, there is a conspiracy either way you look at it. But when you don't, if you go off the rails and start just blaming the government for all these crazy things they could do, whatever they want, it's like, I wish 9-11, I always say this, I wish 9-11 was as simple as they make it out to be because I wouldn't spend 16 years pulling out my hair or whatever I have left out of my head, you know, trying to get the information and trying to find out what's true and what's not. And so I wouldn't, you know, just I, I would sit back and relax. Oh yeah, thermite. Oh yeah, CGI. How you know how easy that is? It's so easy because you have to explain it. And if you say, "Well, prove holograms," you can always say, "Here's a link: Judy Wood, Christopher Bowling, and they because that's how they learned. They they were given a link. They saw the film. It acquiesced to their worldview and said, "Yep, that that's what I believe." It reminds me so much of you know coming out of the libertarian podcast world. There's a lot of um, not in the podcast world, but in the libertarians, uh, in, in argumentation and whatnot, you see a lot of just go read the, just go read human action. Just go read this Rothbard book. And so it reminds me of the same mm-hmm. sort of attitude. Like, like it's, it's something like, well, I've been enlightened by whatever it is, this documentary, this book, this philosophy, and I get it. Cause I've seen it. Of course, if I just get everyone else to see it, they'll see things the same way I do. That's not true. First of all, people watch the same shit and, and come away with completely different thoughts on it or read the same things and, and what, what have you. But it's also just not how humans work. You don't just show them a link and show them a book, even if it changed your mind about something and then and then they copy and paste your beliefs onto it. That that doesn't work mm-hmm. at all, especially when you're doing it in, in, in the, this case, maybe in the case of libertarians too, you're doing it in a somewhat aggressive manner. Oh, uh, my goodness. Uh you know, look, looking at it from that perspective, I can understand how certain truthers can look at. Like, I'll give you a great example. Real, I'll make it real short. A year ago, that Brotherton, a friend of mine from We Are Change LA, formerly of We Are Change LA, he once said, I'll, I'm going to have you come in a room and explain 9 11 to two, you know, truthers from 9 11. I'm not going to name their names. So I don't want to shame them. And I said, I'll give you an hour. Explain the 9 11 to them. And I said, I, I don't know if I could do it now. I did. I tried my best. The first question I got was from this one woman who basically looked at me and said, can you simplify it? And I told her, I just Here's did. a link. <laughs> I just did. And that's when I knew. It, that answer right there, I understood the mindset of the French truth. Movement. I said, oh, my God, they're in big trouble. Because if that is too complex for them, I can only imagine if they looked at 9-11 without those truth and they looked and said, holy crap, what did I miss? And if they only knew that the conspiracies that they, they 
didn't acknowledge and finally acknowledged it's bigger than all the conspiracies they believe combined because all that is fruitless nonsense. And it does show that there is an even bigger, wider network of conspiracy, but it's much more human rather than, you know, uh, this ghostly image of of 9-11 and the government that they make it out to be. Well, Adam, I mean, there's a there's a number of uh, little areas I'd like to go into you with, but uh, we're going to sure. save that, I think, for the bonus segment, the smug filled room. I'll, I'm going to ask you about some of the some of the weirder aspects of 9-11 oh, and yeah. get your thoughts on that. But uh, as we wrap up here, just I'll give you one more chance just to uh, well, give any final thoughts, if you like, and as well as uh, feel free to plug away on everything you got going on. Well, I guess the final thoughts would be to, I think, uh, advice. My advice to you is that when you look at any human event, it doesn't have to be 9-11. Don't look at it with any pre-context, pre-preconceived worldviews. Look at it like a crime scene, like you're an investigator. You go to a crime, you collect the evidence, and you don't make any prejudgments before you investigate. So in other words, you can't place blame on anybody. And that's why I say look at 9-11. Look at it with a clean slate. And then collect the evidence. And this way, whatever this evidence leads to, whether it's United States, just the United States, or just Israel, or just Saudi Arabia, or a combination of all three, well, then that's where it leads to. And you can actually go to sleep knowing that you investigated responsibly. And uh, as for plugging away, you could just Google my name, Adam Fitzgerald 911. I come right up. Or you can go take a shortcut. Go to Twitter, underscore Adam Fitzgerald Twitter. And I have a pinned tweet of all the links to all my sites. All right. Well, Adam Fitzgerald, thank you so much for coming on my show. Really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Adam Fitzgerald. The discussion continued, as always, for premium subscribers over in the smoke-filled room where we dug into uh, some of the wilder, more unbelievable aspects of 9-11, including the quote-unquote magic passport. Uh, we talked about Building 7 and the BBC reporting its collapse minutes before it happened. We even talked about... Anybody, anybody looking around here? The Dancing Israelis, that's right. We talked about the Dancing Israelis. All in the smoke-filled room for Mark Claire Show premium subscribers. You can support the show if you enjoy the product I'm putting out for you. I do my best to produce a show I would want to hear. So if you, if it's the one you want to hear and want to continue to hear it, uh, you can hear even more of it behind those paywalls. You can find out all your options over at markclair.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. I really do appreciate it all of the support. Uh, and uh, there are several ways you can support the show. I don't really care how you do it. You know, each have their their bonuses, their, their pluses and minuses, whatever's easiest for you. You can do Patreon. You can do Subscribestar. You can support me on Rockfin where you get access to 400 other creators as well. So there's a plethora of options for you. Find them all at markclair.com. Until next time, my friends, from what will be a brand new, maybe maybe getting built up in, in the middle of the process, uh, Mark Claire Show Studios. Until next time, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening and good night.